0: Hey, this week on Jesus Sex and Politics, we are going to bring you the live version of Pastor Rob McCoy's message from when he was here with us just a week ago. The word that Pastor Rob brings is super encouraging. It motivates and inspires the church to get off the bench and to engage. God is waking up his people all across this nation. The battle is not over. We still have a lot of work to do, but with God on our side, there is none who can be against us. Let's dive in. Let's listen to the encouraging word from Pastor Rob McCoy as he inspires us to engage in the battle we find ourselves in. Hey, welcome to the Jesus, Sex, and Politics podcast. I'm Micah. I'm Nathan. And here we talk about all the things that culture doesn't want to talk about. Oops. And that might scare you. I want to bring to you a man that I have gotten to know this last year. What a blessing. Um, he's the pastor of Godspeak uh, Calvary Chapel out in California. And uh, my wife and I got to go out with, Micah and Susan and just get to meet him and just fell in love with him. It's, it's one thing to respect a man first, but we also fell in love with you. And, and uh, Rob McCoy, is a, um, he is really a great influence in our nation today in way of helping the church get mobilized. He's working with TP USA Faith, Charlie Kirk, and uh, we want to invite him to come. He's a good friend. Come and speak to our hearts, my brother. Thanks, everybody. I, uh, he says he, he loves me, and uh, I'm not used to men saying that to me, um, but I love him as well. And um, so I, I love you as much as a man can love another man and still be a man. How's that? <laughs> you and your wife are treasures. Love you both. Uh, we, they got a chance to come out to California because we did the first ever uh, pastor summit with uh, TPUSA Faith. And um, if you don't know what TPUSA Faith is and all these uh, posters behind me, uh, it was uh, a brainchild uh, of Charlie, Kirk, and myself that occurred when, and, and um, Charlie calls uh, I call Charlie my friend, he calls me his pastor which uh, he's on the road 330 days a year so I don't know what that really means he's never at church I'm gonna have to kick him out now (laughs) Um, and and how I met Charlie I I don't do social media for the most part I mean I do have accounts but I'm not the one who does them someone else does them for me I never go on Twitter I just I, I just it's a cesspool I have no interest um, and, and, especially when we defied the governor and people were just, you know, shoveling hate on top of us. And I, I just, you know, just clueless as to everybody hating me, run into him in the supermarket. And I always had something nice to say cause I had no idea they hated me. Um, but, but God brought our paths together serendipitously and it doesn't make any sense. Um, and Charlie and I became friends and then, um, that, that, that friendship grew And um, I I turned to him one day as I'd been traveling with with him quite extensively during the campaign. And as I was uh, traveling with him and seeing that the man matched the message and the message matched the man, uh, I I saw in him a man who loved the Lord and his character. There's three things that bring somebody of influence down. It's gold, glory, or girls. Um, And he wasn't susceptible to any of those. He was one of the most honorable men I'd ever met. I observed him in the most trying of times. We'd been on the road nine days, and I think 12 or 16 states. It was exhausting, four to five hours of sleep a night. And here I am trying to keep up with a, at the time, I think he was 26, I was 56. It's like, this isn't fair. <laughs> uh, he's boundless in energy. Um, and I, I, I said, Charlie, why don't you come and speak at our church? He goes, oh, I don't speak in churches. I said, why is that? And he goes, the church doesn't want me. I go, well, we do. I said, why why wouldn't they want you? He goes, Well, I'm I'm the CEO of a secular 501c3. We have atheists, agnostics, or some homosexuals involved in Turning Point, and and the church just doesn't want me. I said, Charlie, there's people in our church that have spoken that are, you know, CEOs of companies that have the exact same configuration as Turning Point does. You've never professed to be a Christian organization, but you've never compromised your Christian faith, and you've never shied from, from speaking of it, and you've been outspoken, as a matter of fact, and, and bold, and you've, you've never compromised your beliefs. I said, Charlie, Galatians chapter 3 says that the law is, is a schoolteacher, a guardian, to point us to Christ until faith comes. You're contending in, in the public square for for laws that would point people to Christ until faith comes. Our founders called it the laws of liberty, or excuse me, the laws of nature and nature's God. I said, Charlie, you are doing a service to the body of Christ because you're getting all these young people rowing in the streams of liberty. And liberty's not man's idea, it's God's idea. And And the further upstream they go, the more they realize the source is Jesus, because as Pastor Nathan had pointed out, uh, 2 Corinthians 3.17, where the spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. I said, Charlie, you're, you're doing the work of the Lord. Come and speak. He goes, well, okay. They're not going to hate me? I go, no. They're going to adore you. I have been with him, and I've seen this man speak. I've seen him go on campuses where he's reviled and hated, and the Antifa are ready to kill him. And he's just, he, he's just standing like a stone, unaffected, brave. He came to our church and he was shaking like a leaf. I'd never seen him like this. I go, Charlie, what's going on? I am so nervous. Because he has such a respect for the pulpit and he didn't want to do anything that would bring shame upon the bride of Christ. When he stepped into that pulpit, something happened. It was transformative. He, he ended up, I'm sorry, I'm a little ADD, this is in the line, so there we go. Yeah. <laughs> I'm kidding. My wife's like, you're not ADD. Your closet's a mess. You're all, uh... yeah, I'm sorry, dear. Yeah, but that one, for whatever reason, I'm here. Okay. And, and, and Charlie just, when he stepped behind that pulpit, the giftings of the Lord are irrevocable. And that calling came to fruition. And now um, I got a call from Jack Hibbs, who's a pastor of Calvary Chapel Chino Hills. He said, Rob, I want you to come out and do a Wednesday night service. You do a Wednesday night service for Jack Hibbs, you become Christian famous. And I'm like, wow, Jack, really? I mean, I have a gift of preaching a church down to a manageable size. Are you sure you want me to come? And he says, no, we want you to come. I go, Jack, you don't want me. I said, I'll tell you who you want. There was just a young guy who spoke at our church this Sunday. His name's Charlie Kirk. He goes, I've heard about him. I go, you need to have him. He goes, I don't know. I've heard things. I go, what have you heard? And he repeated the same mantra. I said, Jack, why don't you do this? Why don't you listen to Sunday's service and you tell me? I said, the views we've had have been tremendous, and the young people that have responded to the message. I mean, he brought the house down. So Jack listened to me going back and said, I'll take him. Now, I've never had the chance to speak at Jack's, Jack Hibbs' church since then, but Charlie spoke, and it was the most profound. And Jack has had him on a number of, uh, of events, and the views have been in the millions, tens of millions. And that launched him across the country, where he's now spoken in hundreds of churches. And we turned to each other and we just said, you know what, I thought, oh, and excuse me, I have to share this part. Um, I met Charlie um, at a conservative radio, uh, radio show convention in Ontario, California, and I, I had a terrible secretary at the time, it was Sunday, I finished my third service, I was coming out, and she said, you know, you have an event at two o'clock. I go, Really? I go, I I don't do events on Sundays. I'm glad you told me. And thank God I was wearing a blazer. I never do, except for tonight, because they said it was business casual. This is about as business casual as I can get for you. Um, And and so I said, well, thank God I'm wearing a blazer. I said, where's the event? She says, it's in Ontario. I go, if I leave now, I may make it. It's like a two hour trip. So I'm driving frantically. I get there. I don't know what the event is. I asked her, what's the event? I'm not so sure. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Bless your heart. Look at you. Yeah. she loved people and she had great ministry terrible administrator bless her heart so so I drive to Ontario I get there I realize there's 3,000 people there I walk into a green room there's Dennis Prager and you can, uh, um, uh, Larry Elder and, and Eric Metax I'm like Phew. and there's Charlie Kirk and my son had told me about Charlie and I had seen him once at the CNP with Lila Rose and he was real young back then and he I, I liked his fire but I'd never met him never listened to a video And I I didn't even say hello, and he's reading this thick book on Socrates, or maybe it was Aristotle. He's a voracious reader. I thought, that's a pretty sharp kid. So I get up on a panel, and it's me, Jack Hibbs, and another guy named Tim Thompson, and they're talking about pastors and politics. And I'm the only pastor on the panel who was holding office at the time. I was a city councilman. I had actually run for the state assembly um, in 2014 after a trip to Israel. And um, I I was a teaching pastor on a trip with Governor Rick Perry, who was considering running for president. So he took a lot of Texas big boys to Israel. And he was, you know, going to see if he can get his support to raise the funds to run for president. And they asked me to be the teaching pastor at all the holy sites. So I go on this trip, and, um, and I did the same thing I did when I was asked to be the teaching pastor for a trip for the RNC, the Republican National Committee. I think there's 168 members of the RNC, and somebody had donated money for a free trip to Israel, but it was gonna be a spiritual trip. It was like kind of a timeshare deal. You get to go to Israel, but you gotta to listen to a preacher. They're like, huh. Oh. Because, you know, RNC, um, you know, these, these, these delegates, these, these chair people of the RNC, these are hard drinking, hard partying. You got agnostics, atheists, Christians, Catholics, Protestants, or Protestants, Catholics, Mormons, Jews, both, I don't know. Uh, reform, conservative, orthodox. I mean, it's, it's a potpourri of people. Um, and, and I'm a little nervous, and I'm supposed to be the teaching pastor. And I think we took 86 of the 168 members of the RNC. And we get to the Mount of Beatitudes, and it's the first place we're at, and they've had this long trip, and they're all jet lagged, and they drove in from Tel Aviv or Netanya, which is the coastal city. We get to the Mount of Beatitudes, and thank God it starts raining. So they all have to gather under the awning on the Mount of Beatitudes. And my introduction from the host was, oh, well, this is Rob McCoy, he's a pastor and he's gonna be sharing with you. And they're all on their phones, they're like, oh, here we go, timeshare deal, you know. And it was a tough assignment. And I had been praying what to say and I took a Stephen Mansfield book and I said, um, you know, we're an eclectic group. We don't have a lot in common. I'm a Protestant Christian minister, there's a lot of Catholics here, Mormons, there's Jews, there's atheists and agnostics. Um, There's a lot of folks who have different sexual preferences than I do. I said, but um, I wanna share with you because the only thing we all have in common is that we're all members of the Republican Party, which was established in, I think, 1857 by 21 people in a church in Ripon, Wisconsin for the sole purpose of abolishing slavery. And they got a backwoods kentucky boy who was uh, it only held a congressional seat it failed in most of all of his elections and he ended up winning the presidency he 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 came to washington and the states had already seceded from the union and he came under protection many said which has never been confirmed that he had to dress like a woman so he wouldn't be assassinated He gets there, and his first inaugural address was profound. Scripture was prolific. He ends up, as they enter into war, and the South bombs Fort Sumter, he watches as they begin to lose every battle. It wasn't until Lee invaded the North and came to Gettysburg, July 1st to the 3rd, and the tide of the, of the war turned grant became the commander of the union forces and he threw so many union soldiers at the southern forces that he basically broke a meat grinder the death toll was rising people were sick of lincoln they wanted to settle with the south he knew he wasn't going to win re-election He turned to Frederick Douglass, the first black man invited into the White House, not as a slave or a servant, but as a human being. He said to Douglass, he said, listen, I need you to get south of the Mason-Dixon line and tell every black man and woman to get north, because when McClellan wins the office of presidency, he's going to seal the border, and we need to let those folks be free. Frederick Douglass was amazed at the man and realized he had character. Of course, we know that Sherman marched down to the south and the war began to fall in the favor of the Union and victory was imminent. And Lincoln, for the first time in 39 years, it wasn't since uh, Andrew Jackson, he was the first president to win a second term. And on his inaugural address, he, he spoke in such a way that people saw the hand of God There was mercy in his words, but he invoked the Lord in the judgment upon the nation. 650,000 people lay dead on battlefields scattered across both the north and the south. He was reviled by many. And as the war was coming to a close and the second inaugural address had been given and victory was imminent, He finally had a moment to spend with his wife and they were going to Ford's Theater. And I turned to these Republican National Committee members and I said, I wanna share with you the last words of the very first Republican president. He said, as he was riding with his wife in the carriage and they got to the theater late because it had the first time they've been able to hold hands. And one of his sons had died of a disease. They'd lost two children. Uh, Mary Todd Lincoln had gone through some real manic issues. And Lincoln is holding her hand, and they get to the theater late, and they could only find a major in his wife, which was humiliating for a president of the United States to sit with him in the presidential box. No one stood when his name was announced. Uh, it was called My American Cousin. That was the play that night. As he sits down in the presidential booth, John Wilkes Booth, who wanted to assassinate him at the second inaugural, was actually there and he had pried the door open and he was prepared to approach the back of his head with a derringer and shoot him. And as he crept up to the president with the gun in his hand, Lincoln, holding Mary Todd Lincoln's hand, said these final words to her. And this is confirmed by the curator of the Lincoln Library and Mary Todd Lincoln herself. He said, my dear... When this is all over, meaning the war, I long to walk with you in the footsteps of our state, of our savior in the streets of Jerusalem. Bang. April 14th, 1865, he gets a bullet to the back of his head. That's the reward for lifting the scourge of slavery from the warp and the woof of the fabric of our country. He lived to the next day, April 15th, 1865. He died on Good Friday. And you know what the pulpits in America said? They didn't celebrate the great emancipator. They decried the fact that the president of the United States died in a theater on Good Friday. That's called moral pietism. It's nauseating. Lincoln had never professed membership to a church, had never been baptized, but there was never a man who did more for Christendom than Abraham Lincoln. It was all political, all political. He paid the price for it, changed the course of a nation, and held the union together. And I turned to these RNC members, and I said, that backwoods Kentucky boy who'd ever, never had a formal education who had been drinking from the streams of liberty his whole life longed to come to its source, and you're now able to stand where he never could. I'd encourage you for the next 10 days to drink deeply. And I walked away. We baptized 43 of the RNC members that had come in the Jordan River. Many of those folks hold positions of great authority. One in particular was Sean Spicer. I met him, I didn't baptize him, he was a believer, but we had a long talk and he reconfirmed his faith. I sent him a devotional, actually two. I said, give this to someone else that you may think needs it. He was, yeah, you don't know who he is. Well, okay, never mind. I'll leave that alone. When I was on that trip with Rick Perry in 2014, Shannon Grove, who was an assembly member in California, told me I should run for office because I knew all my elected officials. And I I said, I don't know. She called me later and she said, the Lord told me you're supposed to run. I said, well, he didn't tell me. And I didn't know you had a bat phone and try to find that. And I prayed about it and so did my wife. And we both realized God had said yes. And I didn't know the first thing about the assembly. I knew it was the lower house, but I had no idea what it did. And she said, you'll figure that out. And I did Threw my hat in the ring. And, and, and the verse God gave me as I prayed about it was kind of shocking. This is how he confirmed me to run. I think it's Job 13, 15. I remember what it says. Yea, though he slay me, yet will I praise him. (laughs) That's sweet. Thanks so much. And I figured it was just going to be a tough election, and it was. They broke my window, keyed my car, death threats. They came after the church, came after the school. I mean, it was, I found out things about myself I didn't even know and dug through the trash, and it was awful. And my own party, the Republican Party in California, spent a million dollars against me. As I was the only Republican standing, there were three. Two dropped out. I was the last one standing with two days to go before the filing period closed, and they put up a 26-year-old Hispanic to run against me and gave him a million dollars in a primary I'd been a Republican longer than I'd been a Christian. And I was thinking to myself, this is tragic. A house divided will not stand. But they didn't want a white evangelical minister and they didn't think a pastor should be in politics. That's how far we've fallen. Well, I ran against this guy and I beat him like a rented mule. (laughs) But I was out of money and I ran against the Democrats. Jackie Irwin, who now sits in office, was my competitor. She's the one who said when asked about transitioning for transgender and how do we deal with biological males competing in female sports, her response was, we just give them hormone blockers at a younger age. We don't give hormone blockers to pedophiles and serial rapists in prison because we consider it inhumane. But in California, we can give it to children without parental consent. We're in trouble. And that's the woman who I was running against. And the Democrats spent $6.3 million against me. I I didn't lose by much. As a matter of fact, it was very, very close. But it was the last time that the Democrats... Had a, uh, didn't have a supermajority in the Assembly or the Senate because they had lost so many races because they had spent so much money in mine. So they asked me to come and speak at the California Republican Convention. I'm like, I lost. They said, yes, but you took 6.3 million bullets. And I got to come and speak. Then they said, well, you should run for the seat she vacated, which was a city council, Thousand Oaks. I said, I'm tired. And they said, we'll do it for you. I ran. I gave it the best I had, but I was exhausted. I ended up winning that night by 52 votes. You know what they call the guy who wins by 52 votes? The winner. (laughs) Yeah. I ended up winning re-election by over 4,000 votes. My second term of office on November 8th, 2018, there was a knock on my sliding glass door close to midnight. And um, it was my daughter. She says, Daddy, you have to answer the phone. I've been trying to call you. I said, what, sweetie? She says, there's been a shooting at the borderline. The borderline was a country western dance hall where our young people would go to do country western dancing. It was college night, and a lot of kids who had survived the Route 66 shooting in Vegas were there in a reunion to encourage one another. When a gunman came into the borderline and killed 12 of our young people, including two kids from my congregation... I showed up at the command center that night and stayed there until about 2.30 in the morning as we had been broadcasting an 800 number that parents could call if they wanted to know where their child was. If they were in any of the local hospitals, this was a number they could call. But the parents who remained at the command center shivering cold weren't getting word, and they were becoming more and more worried. So we set up a center at the Alex Fiore Teen Center, and we escorted them there, and we put cots and coffee And I was driving home at 2.45 in the morning and the Lord said, go back and stay with them. I'd been a sheriff's chaplain and I was qualified to be with them. And I turned around, I went back, stayed with them through the evening. And early, early, early in the morning, they wanted me to do a press release or go before the cameras. I'd never done live anything in my life. I said, you want the mayor? Because at the time I was mayor pro tem. I said, you need the mayor. Well, our city had been encircled by fires it was one of the worst fires in our city's history. We have an open um, open space circle around our city, and it was burning. It was just—it was a day from hell. We had to evacuate the folks that were in um, um, assisted living facilities to areas where they wouldn't be endangered. I, I went without thir- 36 hours without sleep. And I remember they said, you need to come out. The mayor said, you got to do this because he was, he was a firefighter and he was out battling the blazes and I step in front of cameras across the nation and I remember looking at reporters and I would say, evil has visited our city and they would ask me questions. I would respond with the answers and at the end, I'd look at the reporter and i said, can I ask you a, a favor? She says, anything. I said, would you and all your viewers please do this for us? Would you please pray for us? and she would start to cry. I have it on film, three different reporters crying. Folks didn't believe a minister should be in politics, but that night they were grateful. We did a vigil late that night after I had stayed with the families through the early morning, late morning, and into the early afternoon when the sheriffs began to tell each of the families, and I was with every family when they were notified their child was a victim, and you wanna hear about guttural screams, and I've been telling them all night, hope for the best and prepare for the worst. And for every one of them, it was the worst. I love my city, I went to every funeral. I officiated two of them. It was a profound time, the vigil that night, my opponent came up to me sobbing and said, I wish you had been there when my daughter was murdered. I didn't know she had lost her daughter. She hugged me and she said, I'm so proud that you are on the council. She was a very liberal, left-leaning Democrat. People are not the enemy, they're the opportunity. A missionary goes where he's not loved but needed and stays when he's no longer needed but loved. I stayed in that position and I became mayor eight days later. We finally got a park dedicated to the victims and the survivors and the families on the anniversary. Sandy Hook still doesn't have a memorial, but we got it done. We did it during my time there. I was going to win re election overwhelmingly, I was beloved. And then 2020. A virus with a 99.7% survival rate, the government saw reason to overreach and, and, and enact tyranny upon its people. Governor Mussolini is our governor. And, uh, very endearing term I have for him. Governor Mussolini decided that he was going to say the church was non essential and he did it during our Holy Week, Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday. He said abortion clinics were essential, cannabis distributors were essential, liquor stores were essential, but not the church. Well, none of those are covered by the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion nor forbidding the free exercise thereof. Sorry Governor, you don't get to call the Bride of Christ non-essential. I'm a shepherd of the Bride of Christ. Matter of fact, I'm married to Michelle, my wife, my bride, and you want to call her non-essential governor, you'll be picking up your teeth with your broken arm. (laughs) That's not a threat. Don't put me in jail. But don't you dare say it. That's just the way it is. Nobody, and I don't care how powerful the governor is, he doesn't have the right to call the church non-essential. He doesn't get to divide us between essential and non-essential. We're not doing medical apartheid in our country anymore. I'm done with that. And so we defied the governor and we did communion, but we followed CDC standards. We knew the severity of the, uh, the, yeah, the, the, severity of the virus. Severity is combined with virus. And that's because I've been exhausted, thanks to Micah. He doesn't have the gift to hospitality. He's dragging me all over Indiana. <laughs> Wakes me from a coma. Go. <laughs> and we're going to treat you to good stuff. Here's McDonald's. <laughs> Bless his heart. He's just a treasure. Nathan, work with him. Anyways, where were we? thank you. We, didn't, we knew the severity of the virus, but we still followed CDC standards. Our sanctuary holds over 400. We had 10 chairs, and it took us over three and a half hours to do communion on Palm Sunday. And the press descended on us like we were super spreaders, and we were going to kill everybody. But to the press's credit, they said we were the cleanest place in all of Ventura, if not all of California, if not all of the United States. And we got national notoriety, never sought to get that. We didn't do a press release. We continued to contend, and then the The governor decided to march in the riots in Los Angeles with BLM. Shoulder to shoulder, no masks. 75% of the businesses that were burned and looted were Jewish owned and targeted. And I saw that and I thought, this has nothing to do with the virus, I'm done. And we opened our church fully, no masks, no social distancing. We had air purifiers and ionization, but we went for it. Oh, you clap. But the churches came after us. You don't love your neighbor. Romans 13 says we're to submit to all positions of authority, God appoints them. I go, yeah? I don't understand your point. We're supposed to submit. Oh, you think Romans 13 means unlimited submission to tyranny? You're a moron. Number one verse quoted in Nazi Germany, by the way, to bring the church to its knees to Adolf Hitler. Tyrants love to misquote Romans 13, and spineless pastors do too. Use it as an excuse for your apathy and inactivity. Well, it was a preacher by the name of Jonathan Mayhew. He died in 1766, and John Adams, who was one of the presidents of the United States, signer of the Declaration of Independence, It was John Adams who said that Jonathan Mayhew was responsible for the war of independence because he coined a phrase called disobedience to tyrants is obedience to God. And he had gleaned that from his exegetical study of Romans 13 because he read what every one of us has read, that God appoints all positions of authority, we're to submit to them, but he also read they're there for our good. If you do evil, be afraid, for they are a minister of justice to execute wrath on those who would do evil. And he said, the government's there for our good. The authorities are. And when they cease to do good, they cease to be the authority. You see, from John Locke and Montesquieu and others, they came up with the understanding that we have inalienable rights by God and no man was born to be the saddle of another to ride. They've been created equal, not in capacity, but in dignity. Reverend Hooker is the one that put it forward in 1837 that became the kinetic constitution which was instrumental in our declaration of independence. Was so eloquent that when in the course of human events it becomes necessary. It wasn't written for America, it was written for all men for all time. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Jeffersonian way of saying any idiot can understand this. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal. Endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, among those being life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. By the way, they did it in that order because life is critical because liberty and happiness are of scarce little value if you're dead. We're a nation of life, though we've aborted so many murdered them. And I'm not saying that to bring condemnation because every family in this room has suffered from abortion. There's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's the same thing we went through. Everyone in, in the United States when the 1850s and 60s had been complicit in slavery in some capacity, silence in the face of evil is complicit with evil itself. It's called tacit submission. But folks had finally come to a place to say, you know, I'm wrong. And now we have the 13th Amendment. The president got a bullet to his back of his head to lift that. But here we are with the greatest scourge on our nation, the obliteration of generations of children, violently. The least of these. And our founder said, no, it's life. Then liberty. Liberty's different than freedom. Freedom, Thomas Jefferson said, is having choices. If you have $100 and you go into a restaurant where everything on the menu is $100 or less, you have the freedom to buy anything on that menu. But if you you come out with that hundred dollars and somebody comes up to you with a gun and takes twenty-five dollars, you have twenty-five less dollars and you have twenty-five percent less choices. They take fifty percent, you have fifty percent less choices, right? The government can do the same thing with taxes. And they both have a gun, and the results are the same. And if they take it all, you're known as what's called a slave. And the bigger the government, the smaller the citizen. And a government big enough to give you everything you want is big enough to take everything you have. And our founders wanted to make it small. And so they decided to do something different that had never been done in 6,000 years of recorded history. They created a constitutional republic. They looked at Isaiah 33, 22. The the Lord is our king, our lawgiver, and our judge. And so they thought, hmm... The psalmist says and Jeremiah points out that the heart is deceitful above all else. We better divide these powers because power wants to concentrate. Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. And if you don't think God's a nationalist, just read about the Tower of Babel. He is a nationalist. He created nations. He also said we're to make disciples of all nations. He didn't say make converts. He said make nations or make disciples of all nations. Nations are boundaries, borders, and constitutions. You'll be judged individually, but nations will be judged corporately for how they have allowed their citizens to seek God. It's critical. Religious freedom is so critical. And so when they created this three branches of government based on Isaiah 33, 22, they started with the eloquence of the preamble, we the people of the United States in order to form a more perfect union. They made you the sovereign. How do you feel? You've forgotten who you are. You are the freest people on the face of the earth. You represent 4% of the world's population. Yet this nation you call home has been responsible for more patents, Nobel Peace Prize winners, more symphonies, more accumulation of wealth. We brought down two fascist nations, won two world wars. We didn't occupy them, we were liberators. We asked for only enough ground to bury our dead and we gave up our blood and treasure for the sake of their sovereignty. We came home and that freedom has allowed us to accomplish things that no other nation's been able to do. And you say, well, that's because of our natural resources. That's not true. Canada has far more land mass and natural resources than America, and so does South America. We have something that neither of them have, freedom. Freedom what? Freedom to worship. You see, the laws are the wise restraints that make men free. How do laws and restraints make you free? You apply restraints towards evil in order to pursue excellence. Any athlete in the room understands this. I was an all-American swimmer. You know, looking at me going, looks more like a buoy now. Stop it. I wasn't in a competition with Nathan and Micah. This is this is body by well, I guess McDonald's now. There's more of me to love, I keep telling my wife. That didn't work very well. But. but in this idea as an athlete, while my classmates were partying on Friday night, I was in bed by 9 o'clock up at 4, in the water by 5, two hours of swimming until 7, oh, excuse me, that would be during the week, three hours on Saturday, the only day I got off was Sunday, and then I'd do it again. Four years, I never missed a practice trained under Michael Francis Troy who swam at the Indianapolis Athletic Club under Doc Councilman, two-time gold medal winner, broke his own world record seven times, 200-meter butterfly on the cover of Sports Illustrated magazine, a United States Navy SEAL, two tours of Vietnam, and to this day, he's still revered as the toughest instructor in the teams in Coronado, California. And he was the same way as a swim coach. That man... hmm. He's gone to be with the Lord, and I had the privilege to watch him raise his hand to receive Christ in the service. That man instilled in me a work ethic to understand that you apply restraints towards evil in order to pursue excellence. You want to stand on the block and get the medal? Then you got to go to bed at t- on time, and you got to practice. Patrick Mahomes wins a Super Bowl at a young age, and I watched that game eating big bowl of potato chips and drinking a Coke on a Barca lounger. I'll never enjoy football at the level of excellence of Patrick Mahomes because I am not applying restraints. But let's go further with that. You see, that is in a plaque on a stairwell in Harvard Law School, and it's from a 1911 commencement speech that's invoked every year at the grad, to the graduates of Harvard the laws of wise restraints that make men free. Well, where's that come from? It comes from three to five million Jews who are living in slavery, building pyramids in Egypt under the tyranny of Pharaoh, crying out to God for a deliverer. God sends an 80 year old man by the name of Moses. Moses approaches Pharaoh on behalf of these three to five million people. He says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, who's God that I should obey him? He doubles the brick output, reduces the materials. You know what the people do? The three to five million people who want liberty and want freedom, you know what they do? They wanna kill Moses. People want freedom, they just don't wanna work for it or suffer for it. Only one in nine Americans fought in the Revolutionary War. Not you all, you're here. You're the one in nine. Moses wasn't deterred. One man and God constitutes a majority. He continued, 10 plagues, Pharaoh relents at the death of his son, lets them leave with the wealth of the Egyptians and realizes he's losing his slave economy, sends the army after them, which God drowns in the Red Sea. They build a memorial on the other side of the Red Sea because God uses a word that tonight I want it to resonate and echo in your head. Remember, remember who you are to whom much is given, much is required. You're Americans. You don't have to be ashamed of it. Americans' failures are universal, but her successes are unique. It's an amazing country. The most giving country on the face of the earth. Over 80 cents in every dollar in evangelism comes from this nation. You combine all of Western Europe and multiply it by four, it doesn't equal the, Bennett, the, the, the kind giving that America does. When the sea lanes are threatened or a nation experiences a tsunami or an earthquake, Americans are the first to come to their aid. America. I'm a Christian and I'm an American. I love my wife as a Christian. I love my church as a Christian and I love my nation as a Christian. You see, I can live in Japan my whole life and become a Japanese citizen but I'll never be Japanese but in America when you become an American citizen you're American it's not an ethnicity it's an idea when you can ascribe to our birth certificate that we've been created equal and the purpose of government is to protect our inalienable rights welcome this is the land of the free and the home of the brave and there's room for more but agree to our principles, our birth certificate, and the seven articles of our U.S. Constitution, and the 27 amendments. Stand by that. Hold your representatives accountable because they govern by your consent, and if they don't know their seven articles, do not elect them. They can't name them, don't elect them. They don't know how many amendments there are. You you challenge them because that's the one thing that protects us from them usurping our sovereignty. They're constrained by that. That's why I looked at the governor. I resigned from my seat that I swore to defend the Constitution as an elected official because I knew they'd censure me because they're cowards. And I gave up a seat I worked hard to obtain and I stood in defiance of that governor. I went before the judge on contempt charges. They threatened me and a thousand people. When I showed up that Sunday defying their restraining order, I didn't know if I was gonna go to jail. Thank God I was wearing clean underwear. When I went there, One of the most amazing things happened. The entire church was surrounded by people who had traveled from all over the country, thousands. And they said, we'll take the citation, let your people worship in peace. They were willing to take one of the thousand citations that the government was threatening. I remember one man holding up a sign. He was an atheist who had a gun store that I'd helped get his business approved, the first gun store in Thousand Oaks, because nobody wants guns in California. But it's a violation of the Second Amendment, he had every right to have a gun store. Three of our worship leaders went and helped him build that out, and helped mud it and tape it and, you know, drywall it. He said, why are you doing this? He said, because we're here to serve you. He couldn't understand it. He was grateful for what I had done. And that day when I showed up at the church, he was on national news holding up a sign that says, it took this S-H-I, and he can put the last letter in there, it took this to get this atheist to church. He now sits in the second row every Sunday. That's the power of standing on behalf of liberty. We've baptized twice as many people as the attendance of the church was 18 months ago. And these are, these are agnostics, Jews, atheists, Mormons. These are people who'd never darken the doors of a church because their streams of liberty had dried up and they went upstream and they found the source, Jesus Christ. And we stood on their behalf. We, we gave them money for their lawsuits. We, we appealed judges. We protested businesses. We sent our church to go support the businesses that remained open. We defied the tyranny. And I got for that as a reward, I got to come before the judge on contempt charges where they wanted to humiliate me. And the judge said to my attorney, counselor, does your client know the second great commandment? I said, judge, may I answer that? He says, please do. I said, judge, I think you're referring to love thy neighbors, as I am. I said, judge, well, the first commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength and mind, love your neighbors, yourself and on these two commandments, hang all the law of the prophets. I said, judge, I do love my neighbor. I love the abused who've been quarantined with their abusers. I love the elderly who had to die alone by your tyranny and your edicts from the bench. I love the 65% of the small businesses that will never reopen because you've devastated them by your Machiavellian process. I love the kids who had a .00002% chance of death whose schools you've shuttered and ruined their childhood who have the highest overdose depression, and suicide rate in generations. I love them. And judge, it's coming at a cost. $3,000 that you've placed on us every time the doors of our church are open that have now amounted to $300,000. Yes, judge. I love my neighbor. I love my neighbor. Do you? Now I have to say something. And I've asked this question all over the country, and I'm not asking you tonight to raise your hand, I don't even want you to answer it out loud, just think in your own mind. Did you take the vaccine because you believe in its efficacy or because you didn't want to lose your job? Or you wanted to see your grandkids? There's been almost 40,000 deaths ascribed to the Vaccine Adverse Events Reaction Site. There were 200 deaths for the swine flu and we shut it down. We've allowed them to, to fire people Medical apartheid. And the question I ask people is, what was the why in what you were doing? Was it because God told you to, or was it a fear of man? We're, we're, as Christians, that's, that's not an option. Victory is not determined by the outcome, but by the obedience. We're to stand in defiance of tyranny that would seek to enslave, because when when the Jews were released from from Egypt and they got to the other side and God says, remember who you are, you were once slaves and now you're free. And he, he, he instituted the Passover, which is the longest running family meal in world history. It's the one that Jesus did on the night he was to be betrayed and, and, it's, and it's to remind everyone, you were once slaves, you're now free and Christ has come to set the captives free. And they get into the wilderness and their shoes don't wear out, their clothes don't wear out, there's manna every morning, there's water where water didn't exist. Quail are blown off course when they whine about meat. They leave with all the wealth of the Egyptians, miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. But the greatest miracle of all time, Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and God gives him a downloaded moral app, the Decalogue. First five commandments are relationship with the Lord, second five with each other. He says, teach the children and put it in the center of the community. He comes down from Mount Sinai and the entire nation under the leadership of Aaron, the millennial, is now in a rave party with a golden calf. Glow sticks and it's not in the scripture, but if you read deeper, Moses does what God said. He instructs the children. He places it in the center of the community, and here's the greatest miracle. Three to five million people lived together for 40 years without a police force or a standing army. Because from the moral law came Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, civil law. The wise restraints will make you free when the moral law governs your civil law, but if you remove God, then the law becomes a weapon to enslave. Which brings us to a word I am nauseated by, I still use periodically, and I'm trying not to. Comes out of Matthew 16, 18. Jesus took his disciples from Galilee up to the headwaters of the Jordan. Most resplendent park-like place I've ever seen. I've been to Israel over 15 times. Every culture that's dominated the region has sent up a temple to their god or goddess. They're carved in the cliffs. It is just inundated with pagan deities. He brings these Orthodox Jewish boys who'd never left Galilee up to the headwaters. And the Romans are occupying it. And they're worshiping probably Bacchus, the god of alcohol, and Aphrodite. There's probably nudity everywhere, fornication. These Jewish boys are like, (sighs) Hey, what is this? And Jesus turns to his disciples. He says, who do men say that I am? In the cacophony of noise of pagan worship, who do men say that I am? Because we are in a cacophony of noise of pagan worship and I want to ask you tonight, who do you say he is? He can be only one of three things, a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. And if he's Lord, two words don't go together, no Lord. And Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, you're the Messiah. You're not a liar, you're not a lunatic. You are my savior. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood is not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven, and upon this rock I'll build my, And yeah, that's a word I hate. It's not church. That word didn't come till hundreds of years later. Matter of fact, the first English-speaking Bible ever printed, done by Tyndale from the original language, he translated it correctly, and for that one word, he was hung by the king and his remains were burned. He translated it assembly. Jesus didn't use a religious term, he didn't say synagogue and he didn't say temple. He said ecclesia or ecclesia. Aristotle had defined it, it's the Greek city state, it's where you'd gather for the welfare of your city deciding on imports and exports and taxes and roads. Eleutheria and Isonomia were the two words on the top of the building when you'd enter in, which spoke about liberty and equality. Sound familiar? And so when you read that passage, upon this rock I'll build my public square, my assembly, my city hall, and the gates which enslave will not prevail because the wise restraints will make you free because you're contending on behalf of your neighbor. And the Bible says for one of these little ones to perish or to struggle or or to be Damage. It's better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and cast in the deepest ocean if you're not in the arena in the public square contending against the gates of hell for the sake of these least of these. What are you doing? I don't do politics. Politics is dirty. So is the church. What's your point? I'm tired of voting for the lesser of two evils. I hear it all. Unless Jesus is running for office, you're always voting for the lesser of two evils. What's your point? You can't use your eschatology as justification either. Calvary chapels of which I'm part of are pre-millennial and we only look at the geopolitical horizon for the soon return of Christ, he's gonna rapture us. We don't know the day or the hour. I want him to come, I want him to come earlier. I didn't I was tired because of Micah. But I, I'm... I, <laughs> let him come now, I'm ready. When he, when he finds me, I'm gonna be busy working. Because Jesus said, occupy until I come, do business until I come. But to use it in saying, well, you're, you're, you're standing against the will of God because it's a one-world government, it's an unstoppable force, then you didn't read Jeremiah 18 when God said to Jeremiah at the potter's house, if I intend evil for a nation and they repent, I'll relent from the evil I intend. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. You didn't like that. That was awful, I'll stop, let me retract that. <laughs> How y'all doing? Tough crowd. Folks, our God is a God of hope. And if this is what we're communicating to our young people, that we're more content on the rapture than we are contending for their future, a nation grows great whose citizens plant trees of the shade they'll never know. This is the only generation in America that sacrificed the life expectancy of their children so that grandma and grandpa could live longer. You shut their schools. I close with a story. May 12th, 1780. The darkest day of the revolution to that point. The British needed a new strategy, they were losing. They knew they had sympathizers in the north they called Tories, so they took all their forces and moved them south to the southern colonies. They figured if they could break the south where the strength was, the Tories would fall in line. General Clinton took all these British soldiers and attacked Charleston. He devastated them, it was the greatest loss in the War of Independence. We lost 7,000 Continental soldiers in the darkest day in American history. Everyone thought it was over. It was Benjamin Rush, Dr. Benjamin Rush, honor of the Declaration of Independence, father of the public schools, in a good way, American Bible Society founder. He turned to John Adams and he said, will we survive this? John Adams said, if we fear God and repent. A week later, The true darkest day in the War of Independence descended upon the north. From Bangor, Maine to New Jersey, you can read it. They still don't know what it was. But at noon, darkness fell on the land and consumed it. People were frightened and overwhelmed and scared to death. They thought it was the end, and they believed it was judgment day. They thought the rapture. Although that wasn't an eschatology back then. But this is a direct account. The dark day inspired terror, panic, puzzlement, men prayed, women wept, thousands left off work and took to taverns and churches. Different kinds of spirits. And they went there for solace. Children were sent home from school. Bewildered chickens went to their roosts. Frightened cattle returned to their stalls. The night birds whistled and frogs peeped as they did at night. And then a man stood in the Connecticut legislature as they were calling for adjournment because they believed it to be Judgment Day. This man was a devout Christian by the name of Abraham Davenport. We used to teach this, but it's been lost in our School books. He gained lasting fame for his response. He said, I'm against adjournment. The day of judgment is either approaching or it is not. If it is, excuse me, he says, if it is not, there's no cause for adjournment. If it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. I wish, therefore, that candles may be brought. It's not over, folks. Kids are looking at you wondering if you care about their future. And if the church doesn't do what they're supposed to do, they have more hope following Greta Thunberg because if she can stop cows from flatulating, they have a future. These young people, things are caught, not taught. They're looking for you to set the example. My kids were thrilled when I stood in their defense. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said the church must be reminded that it is not the master or servant of the state but rather the conscience of the state and it must be the guide and the critic of the state. It's never its tool. And I say to you in closing, what my godfather said to me. My godfather died at a hundred years of age. At 99, he was still driving and doing 100 sit-ups a day. He did them in increments, but he said movement was life. And he still drove, not well, but he drove. <laughs> I was running for the state assembly and I was in the primary. They'd carpet bombed me and attack my church and my school. I'd been threatened and window broken, car was keyed. I was out of money. I didn't want to go to my mailbox and see another hit piece on me. I was gonna miss his 100th birthday. My mom was dead with lung cancer. My dad was in a home with Alzheimer's. So I drove down to Coronado to visit him. He had lived in the same home for the 50 years I'd been on this earth. And he was a profound man. So he was the patriarch for all intents and purposes, my godfather. I'm named after him. His name is Robert Broussard Early, Rear Admiral Robert Broussard Early. I'm Robert McCoy. He was the highest ranking survivor of the attack on Pearl Harbor at 99 years young. He was a lieutenant on the U.S. Cassin on December 7th, 1941. I came to his house, and I sat down. He said, how's it going? His voice just shuddered you. Yeah. He said, Uncle Bob, I feel like I've led these folks on a rosy road to nowhere. I'm getting carpet bombed by my own party. I just California's going to hell in a handbag and it's just overwhelming. And in the middle of my whining, he puts his hand up Shaking with age, but still strong, he puts it up, and I'd never heard him angry in 50 years. He puts his hand and goes, stop it! Nothing like being spanked by a 99-year-old man. It paralyzed me. He said, Rob, you don't know tough. I was 16 years old in the Great Depression. We didn't know where our next meal was gonna come from, and it had not been an appointment to the Naval Academy, I would have never received a college degree. And you, Rob, being a history major, don't realize that we had the 17th largest military on the face of the earth because we were in isolationist mode. And I was in Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, when they sank half our Pacific fleet. They sank my ship. The harbor was on fire, and I pulled my shipmates out of the water dead. The next day, we took on a two-fronted war against two fascist nations. We lifted that fleet from the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. We brought both of those fascist nations to their knees and floated that same fleet into Tokyo Harbor to accept the surrender of the Japanese. We came back and cut federal spending and started the greatest industrial revolution in our lifetime. Now quit your whining and go finish what you started. And I have to say this to you. You're like, I've worked hard, I brought a pillow. (laughs) I watched Tucker. Do poll watching, walk precincts, get in the game. The next generation is looking at us for leadership and God's not finished with America. This nation conceived in liberty and dedicated the proposition that all men are created equal will not perish from the face of the earth. And Indiana is gonna set that example. God bless you guys and light it up, amen.